Killjoy's PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel, and it's just me today with a special guest, uh, Logan Casey, Dr. Logan Casey, Dr. Boo, also. (laughs) Um, Melody and I, uh, for those of you who are regular listeners, you might have thought you were going to get a really exciting episode of me and Melody and the host of Smash Everything, Molly, and one of the hosts of Rise and Resist, Lacey. Um, But my flight to Portland was canceled uh, after waiting at the airport for six hours, uh, waiting for them to fix a plane that never got fixed. And so I didn't get to Portland this weekend after all, which was really devastating, Um, which also meant that we weren't able to record a show this weekend. So uh, in its place, you're getting a belated episode uh, with my, as I said, my partner, Dr. Logan Casey, and we'll be discussing... Uh, LGBT politics, disgust, and trans justice. Um, also, you can find us on the internet. I think you all know all the places. Uh, so we'll just get right into it. Hi, Logan. Hi. How's it going? It's okay. Good. We're sharing a microphone, so it's a little bit ox. That means awkward. I thought you meant ox, like on the Oregon Trail, you know, like OX. Right. Just no. a single one? No. Nope. 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 Just awkward. Yes. Kind of like I'm being right now. <laughs> How you doing, Logan? I'm okay. I'm I'm a little nervous to be on your show. Uh, you shouldn't be nervous. You're well, very smart, and it'll be it'll this be all very good. fancy. Yeah, it's a little fancy in our guest bedroom. I'm trying to make it fancier for you, but your flight got canceled, and I I was gonna sneak attack, make a little studio for you while you were gone. I was inspired by Mel and her partner, but your flight got canceled, and I can't do anything surprising for you ever. <laughs> Also, Logan has a tendency to, if I'm ever, like, feeling sad and he had a surprise for me, he just ruins the surprise because he doesn't want me to be sad anymore. So he's like, here's the thing. I was going to do a thing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. We had an okay weekend, though. You really helped You really helped out trying to get me out of my out of my sad mood, which I was in a big sad mood on Friday. But we had a good weekend. We had some friends over for dinner, and we went to a black and pink meeting and got a lot of work done. Do they know what black and pink is? Uh, I hope listeners know what Black and Pink is. Black and Pink is an LGBTQ prison advocacy organization. It has members uh, on the inside and on the outside, uh, so incarcerated people as well as free world people. And it does um, pen pal support, court support, uh, court visit, or rather jail, jail and prison visits. It's it's a really awesome organization, it's, and it's based in Boston. So we went there. Yeah, that's great. So why don't we just jump right in, because I think your research is really important always, and I feel like, uh, but also in this sort of particular moment, is really relevant. So can you first just tell the listeners about your research, sort of specifically the argument you had in your dissertation? Yeah, uh, so my training is in political science, uh, in American politics specifically, so my research tends to focus on stuff that's going on that's unique to America, though I think some of the some of the things are maybe more generalizable, but just to sort of contextualize the work, it's American-focused. Um, I was trying to understand and explain to my discipline, which is a little behind the times in terms of studying anything related to sexuality, 
uh, and other areas of identity. Uh, but anyway, I was trying to understand and explain in my discipline why we could be observing things like the rapid change of opinion in support of gay marriage. And then while I was writing the dissertation, the actual legalization of gay marriage, but at the same time, see such high rates of violence and discrimination against LGBT people and really like a lack of movement on other policy issues for LGBT people and particularly for transgender people. So a lot of the understanding, at least in my discipline, about how people think about gay issues or LGBT issues is that it's mostly driven by whether you like gay people or uh, whether you know a gay person. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's something that activist movements have focused on for a long time. Like you can think of Harvey Milk attributed as saying, you know, if they know us, they don't vote against us. And so that's been something that's really motivated a lot of LGBT advocacy for many years and a lot of political science and also psychology research on why people support or oppose LGBT policies and that sort of thing. But I was, you know, I was reading all this literature and thinking about this and thinking that really only works if we would, like, if that's true, we should see movement being made in all different kinds of policy areas, not just in some. So why is it that people were becoming more supportive of gay marriage and maybe also non-discrimination policies, but they didn't, like there were still mixed feelings about adoption in some cases and particularly around anything related to transgender people. Uh, and so trying to explain like why some policies were moving ahead and not others. Mm -hmm. uh, and contact wasn't sufficient. So like the idea of if you know a gay person, you don't vote against them or maybe you're more supportive of these policies. Anyway, all of this is a long roundabout way of saying like there was a puzzle here that just this one variable or this one way of thinking about it, I didn't think was very sufficient for actually understanding the complexity of politics. And so I, you know, in my personal life, I am captain of team feelings. Mm -hmm. I, I am a very emotional person, as Rachel knows. So I got really drawn to this political psychology. The point of all of this is to say, I was trying to look at the role of emotion and how people think about LGBT people and issues. And as I was learning about what we call political psychology and emotions in particular, the role of emotions in politics, I kept coming back to this emotion of disgust, which is something that when I was in high school and college, I identified as a gay woman and now I'm a transgender man. And so in multiple times in my life, under multiple identity categories, I've like personally experienced disgust uh, from other people and how that has affected the way people treat me and also people around me and in my community. And so that just like, I just kept getting stuck on that. And so long, long story short, my dissertation looks at the role of disgust as an emotion on how people uh, think about LGBT people and policies. And you found that it did indeed play a role. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, maybe I should have started there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So what I do is uh, I use survey research and original experiments that I did online where people are more willing to tell you terrible things that they think and believe. Everyone says, don't, don't read the comments. Like my dissertation was really about like, no, you should read the comments. That's often what people really think. So I did these experiments and I was trying to see first just do people still feel disgust toward LGBT people? This is something we know people felt historically. And I could talk a lot about different times, particularly in the like 20th century 
uh, as homosexuality was becoming a sort of identifiable category in psychology and, and the political social sphere. But so there's discuss has played a, an important historical role, but trying to first answer the question like, is it still important or is this just me? And showing, so I had people read these fictional news stories that I wrote that were just about like some generic state legislature is thinking about maybe passing a bill related to this particular LGBT topic. How does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. Um, and just reading this li- literally like 100, 125 words that were very generic, that were just, it was basically the same thing as saying like, gay marriage, what do you think? That was enough to make people feel disgusted. Some people feel disgusted. And among the people who said that they felt disgusted, um, as opposed to other emotions, they were much more likely to oppose these policies, particularly com- well, compared to control groups when they were reading mm-hmm. some story not about gay politics. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so people still feel disgust is the point of that experiment. And then I did another one saying, okay, well, that was about different c- kinds of policy issues. What if it's not so much about the policy as much about the people that are supposed to benefit? So like LGBT people are not all the same kind of person. Those letters mean different things. So what if people are having different responses to lesbians than they are to gay men, than they are to bisexual men or women, than to transgender men or women? And so what I did then was uh, another experiment, tried to focus on that question, is it the people rather than the policies? Mm-hmm. And what I found there is that people are much more likely to have a disgust reaction to transgender people than they are to gays and lesbians. And within gays and lesbians, they're more likely to respond negatively to gay men than they are to gay women. Mm-hmm. And that's consistent with a long line of research in psychology and political science about it. We call it a gender gap in opinion toward LGBT people. Yeah. So given that, the, as you were writing, the sort of controversy or or the push, rather, I suppose, to either support or condemn transgender people using the bathroom that they identify with and want to go into um, was also starting to uh, come up in, in the media and the news uh, in different cities. So can you talk a little bit about your role in responding to some of those policies and legislation as well as the sort of hate videos that were created against those bills and, uh, and what that looked like on the sort of political and policy front in Michigan where you were at the time when this was happening sort of what, like two years ago or so? A couple years ago. Yeah. 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 So uh, the bathrooms, yeah, that's like a, a big implication of the dissertation and my research. Um, I think an important thing to note about this is that it, it can often be really confusing and surprising, and I'll probably talk about this again during our conversation, because in polling, which is what I do now, um, we see people generally expressing lots of support for transgender people, and particularly for things about non-discrimination protections, um, polling frequently in 60, 70, 80% of people saying that they support the idea that transgender people should have the same rights as everybody else, that they shouldn't be fired because they're transgender, they shouldn't be uh, refused to be hired because they're transgender, that sort of thing. So people in the abstract support these sort of principled positions about non-discrimination. But when you get down to more specific uh, like implementation questions about what that would actually mean, that's where people start to feel more uncomfortable. And that's when the, dis- the the support starts to erode. And so we saw that in one of the first times that that happened in terms of national media attention, because this bathroom tactic has been something that's been used for decades, uh, not just about transgender people. It's also been used historically 
uh, even even as far back, I mean, I'm sure far further back than this, but just in terms of our sort of modern political era, even like women's suffrage, this was a, a thing. Bathrooms have been a site where people express their, I just wrote this recently for a thing. Um, pe- bathrooms have historically... For a thing, for the Brookings Institute. Oh, shush. <laughs> uh, for, bathrooms have been a place where Americans historically express anxiety and prejudice toward people who are different from them. Because it's a place where you come into close contact with other people. Right? And it's a, a an intimate space. It's a vulnerable space. And I think particularly for men or people socialize male, it can also, it has like a, also like a sexual connotation, but that, that's a different story. Anyway, so in women's suffrage, people were, men were saying like, no, 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 like we shouldn't let women vote. You know, then that means they have access to all these like, pub, they, they would be citizens. They would have access to this public sphere and we'd have to like, you'd have to basically, you know, see how disgusting men really are which is the same kind of language we hear now. It was something that was used in the civil rights era in terms of segregated bathrooms, something that was used in term, in the 70s when we were talking about the Equal Rights Amendment. Phyllis Schlafly and others talked about, well, if we pass the Equal Rights Amendment, then women will have to be in the military and we will have to have unisex bathrooms and God knows what will happen to the country. So there's a long history of bathrooms mm-hmm. being a place where opponents to social progress say, but what about the bathrooms as a way to sort of stop uh, any momentum or inertia? And it's been happening with trans stuff and LGBT stuff for a long, long time. So anyway, this is not a new tactic at all, uh, but in terms of national attention in Houston um, in 2015, um, this was just a couple months after the Supreme Court, Obergefell, legalized marriage equality nationwide. So just a few months after that, I think lots of people were still pretty riding high on that victory, uh, that legal victory. And surprising election result happened in Houston. I think it was uh, November or December. Well, it would have been November, I guess. In Houston, the city council had passed a an equal rights ordinance. It was called Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, or HERO for short. And it added or modified language to protect like I think 15 different classes, including, you know, sex, gender identity, race, ethnicity, I think veteran status, lots of different types of things. It's sort of like your classic uh, human rights ordinance that protects from non-discrimination in employment and housing and these sorts of things. It's a thing that cities routinely do. And so the city council passed this. It had, like I said, 15 plus different categories. One of them was gender identity, which is the legal language that we use for protecting transgender people. Houstonians had a fit about this, or at least some some small group of them that was able to agitate in a very public campaign and started, instead of talking about this as an equal rights ordinance or a non-discrimination ordinance, with all the different protections it afforded, they rebranded it as a bathroom bill. And it became entirely about the gender identity inclusion and was really sort of a precursor to the North Carolina debate that we saw the next year about HB2, where a similar thing happened. A city passed a, a Non-discrim- Charlotte passed a non-discrimination ordinance that protected against gender identity. And then there was this wild backlash that ended up overturning the ordinance. And the debate around that ordinance, both in terms of Charlotte's ordinance in North Carolina and Houston's, was entirely about bathroom bills and sexual predators in bathrooms and are transgender people really who they say they are and like all of this awful language. And it was surprising to see people. So it was surprising to a lot of people that just months after gay marriage, something like this could happen. And by the way, like Houston is a city that had elected an out lesbian mayor Mm -hmm. three times in a row. She was on city council when this passed. 
So it's not like this is, you know, like a deeply homophobic place in the deep south or whatever. Like, Houston's a relatively progressive place, and they had a gay mayor that they elected, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was surprising to a lot of people. And so what happened in Michigan, to get back to your question, was right around the same time, there were folks in Michigan who were saying, look, we just won this national marriage ruling. Uh, now is the time to press our advantage and to try to put more rights and protections for LGBT people into the Michigan law and, and constitution. Because in Michigan, like many other states around the country, you can still get fired for being gay and this, this, and for being transgender. Mm-hmm. And this is a misconception that lots of people have. Like if in polling work, if you ask people, not, not do you think it should be illegal, but do you think it currently is illegal, like as a, as a matter of fact, to fire someone for being gay? Most people think it's already illegal, right? and it's not, Yeah. Um, at least in most states, and there's not federal law on this. So in Michigan, the push was to say, let's take the momentum from the gay marriage ruling, where we think we've changed a lot of hearts and minds about people, and try to translate that into another policy victory here at home. And so people wanted to basically put on the ballot on a statewide ballot in what would have ended up being the November presidential election when Trump won. Yeah. Anyway, so they wanted to put on the ballot in November 2016, uh, put it to a vote, a public vote, about whether sexual orientation and gender identity should be added to the state's non-discrimination law. And me and some other folks in the state were like, did you not just see what happened in Houston? Yeah. Did you not just see this like in a matter of weeks ago? What are you talking about? This is no, it it was infuriating on a number of levels. Sorry, you well, want... just that. So, but then on paper, it looks like these you know, some members of the LGBT community are basically like, we do not want to attempt to get this this passed for trans people, basically, as opposed to do, did you see the backlash and what happened? Is that I mean, am I articulating that correctly? Um, well, so historically, what has happened is you think of like Barney Frank in the yeah. In, Congress, where when LGBT protections have tried to go forward and there's been some resistance or backlash, sometimes in the past, people have dropped transgender people from their efforts uh, in order to gain partial protections for some members of the community, even at the expense of others. And to the credit of the people who were trying to push this, they were trying very hard not to do that. Um, And they were trying to say, like, no, we were constructing this in a way that like, we're also adding sex, so it will be a broader gender issue, not just LGBT issues. Um, and they were trying to work across the aisle with lots of Republicans and, and business owners and stuff to, to make it, set it up for success. But it was just, like, basically any time you put the rights of a minority, like, his, history tells us, and recent history too, like, including in Houston, just weeks before this conversation was happening in Michigan, that when you put the rights of a minority group on the ballot, they're gonna lose. Mm-hmm. They're gonna lose because in like when it comes down to brass tacks, when you get into the privacy of the ballot box, for a lot of people, their fears and prejudices come out, and you can't control what's gonna happen in there. And like no matter your best efforts, and include in Houston, and I think also in Seattle, which was another place where this recently happened, proponents of the pro-gay side outspent the anti-gay side three to one or four to one like millions and millions of dollars and they still lost yeah right so we in michigan we were trying to have a conversation about one the group that was pushing this forward had no transgender people in its leadership yeah 
but we're claiming to speak for and protect transgender people or working to protect transgender people. And I want to say, like, I believe their motives that they thought this was righteous and were trying to do a good thing and believed, they really believed that they could win, but it wasn't grounded in fact Mm -hmm. (laughs) or reason or a, a sense of like political acumen about like reading the landscape of the country, uh, and particularly attitudes like following the legalization of marriage. Like yeah. That's a, a, a symbolic threat to a lot of people that can political science will tell us like leads some people to express their, their prejudices a little more outwardly because they feel threatened, right? And so in Michigan, we were trying to have this conversation about, yeah, the leadership of that group not having any transgender people despite claiming to try to protect us, trying to rush things, like one, less than a year to put together an entire ballot campaign is incredibly rushed and means that things will not go well on top of which the amount of money and resources that would have gone into fighting that fight yeah and what else could that money have gone to right like the homeless youth for example that sort of thing Um, and so we were trying to have this conversation with this group and with the broader public because lots of people were like yeah let's do it why is it a bad thing that we should be pressing our hand basically um and so it was this one of the most complicated political experiences that I've had in activism in terms of like trying to explain to the LGBT community why doing a thing that on paper appears to be trying to protect our rights is a bad idea. Can we? Ju- can I just clarify though? I mean, you brought up uh, Barney Frank, who has, as a gay man. Uh, has fought against including gender identity on ENDA, which is the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, because this sort of incremental change sort of belief, like they're not, you know, they barely accept gay people, so they're not going to accept trans people one step at a time. Is that the position you're taking, or are you talking about the, this is the question I was, I was, I think I didn't word correctly earlier. What I understood, the, the bigger issue is the way that the, the anti-campaign would create a more sort of hateful and vitriolic landscape. Yeah, no, thank you for for that, because I wasn't answering that well. No, it was, I'm certainly not in a, like, well, I think in most cases I am kind of an incrementalist. I'm, I I don't, and this is a conversation you and I have all the time about working in the system versus working to abolish a system. Um, But most of the time I think of myself as an incrementalist, but not when it means at the expense of the, already most marginalized or vulnerable people in a community, right? So like, yes, I'm an incrementalist, but that doesn't mean that I want to throw people under the bus to get that incremental progress. Like mm-hmm. that, at that point, that's a loss. That's not progress. And, you know, the folks on the other side at the time were saying, that's something for you to say, because maybe that means that like I as a lesbian won't, won't get fired. Mm-hmm. How, that's not throwing me under the bus. Like, how can you say that that's a loss for me? Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, those were tough questions that we had to have as a community. You're right. The, the bigger question was not – so I wasn't advocating, like, just do the just do the LGBT protections and we'll come back for a translator when it's a better time. Like, I was absolutely not advocating that. I was saying we need to not do this at all mm-hmm. because even if you drop trans protections, that's no guarantee that it's going to pass, which is exactly what happened with Barney Frank and Inda. He dropped trans protections. And it, didn't, it never passed. It mm-hmm. still hasn't passed. It's mm-hmm. 2017 and it still hasn't passed. Yeah. So dropping it is no guarantee that it is going to pass. 
And even if you do drop it, that's not going to stop the other side from drumming up the same old bathroom fears. Because we know that when people are ruthlessly pursuing anti-LGBT protections, they have no regard for the truth, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And Or for fact. Yeah. Um, so it wouldn't have stopped them from doing the bathroom stuff anyway. So right, exactly. The The main thing that we were trying to argue is that like, this is not a winning strategy. And in fact, it will likely set back the community, both the LGB community and the trans community, years, if not decades, because if it goes to a vote and it's voted down, that is going to dramatically undermine our efforts to pursue these protections through the state Congress, mm-hmm. because then Congress people who are in you know competitive districts will say like, well, look, we voted on this and people said no, so I have no cover to support this and go back to my district and be able to answer them. And the the vitriolic messaging that would come out of the opponents would just be this pure hate mongering and would create a, a violent atmosphere for people who are already super marginalized and at risk of violence, namely transgender and gender nonconforming people. And we see that all over the country, that even in states where the bathroom bills aren't happening, the national coverage of the anti-trans and, and the bathroom messaging in general is leading to a lot of people like policing other people in the bathroom, even people who aren't trans, but mm-hmm. people who are maybe gender nonconforming. And just, it, it creates a violent atmosphere that puts people at risk and particularly kids. Mm-hmm. Right? So we see like what's happening with the Gavin Grimm, Grimm case in North Carolina, or in Virginia, rather. This all like A lot of this comes out at, at the youth level mm-hmm. as well, and that's a place like... So we were arguing, like, let's just wait a cycle mm-hmm. and let us have you know the, the couple years between then and 2018 to do some real on-the-ground education campaigns and let transgender people speak for themselves mm-hmm. and decide for themselves how they want to pursue strategies and in the meantime we'll basically like be laying the groundwork so that when we do come together as a community on on a strategy we can win Mm -hmm. yeah that's i think a nice transition into thinking about the sort of past month and the upcoming week so within the last few weeks the gavin Grimm case uh did not get heard in the supreme court which was a loss um and a setback uh, there was, you know, rallies all around to hashtag protect trans students, which, which also got some some critique for the ways in which that sort of uh, dismissed the the fierce fighting that trans youth have, have always done uh, for themselves. Regardless, it was in solidarity of, of, of trans youth. Um, and then this week, we uh, are seeing a call for a National Day of Action for trans women of color. And although that I haven't seen quite the energy and organizing around that, particularly in Boston, where, where we live. But I am interested in having a conversation about uh, going back to this question about basically the idea of centering the margins, right? And so to think about tying all of this in together, your research on disgust, who is sort of, this is not to play oppression Olympics, but it's to think realistically about who is sort of discursively and materially most marginalized and violenced and harmed uh, by societal discourses, laws, and structural uh, structures, rather. Um, I want to think about what it means to assert trans politics that can center the people who maybe society finds most disgusting. And we know that gender, sexuality, race, and class are all things that have been historically pathologized 
and has evoked disgust. So I just wonder if you could just speak to that idea. Um, I think that's a question all of us are asking about how, how do we make better politics? I don't know, it's just such a broad question. I, so I, I, like, I think about my own personal politics and how I act those out. So like I have a PhD, I'm a white person, I grew up middle class and still have all of that social support and safety net. So I, I, like, I try to think about the privileges and experiences I have and the skills I have and like how I can help. But for me, I try really hard to hold on to like the distinction between a savior mindset and a service mindset for one. So like when this was all happening in Michigan, one of the first ways that I got involved was there was uh, at the LGBT center in Detroit, basically like a transgender summit had been mm -hmm. announced of like, this is happening. We're not being included. We need to talk to each other about what, how we want to respond. And so I, I went to that and it was something that had been organized by trans women and including some trans women of color and went to that. And, and, you know, like this is a, Kate, when we're talking about like violence against trans people, it's almost uniformly violence against transgender women and particularly against transgender women of color. And so being able to like go to that space and have a lot of feelings and know that like, relatively speaking, like I am a political expert on, on this sort of like why people feel the things they do and what that's going to mean for policy and how should we think about campaigning and whatever, but still being in that space and like not speaking, mm -hmm. right? Like, I'm not the one who this is necessarily going to affect like my class privilege and the healthcare I had at Michigan, the, like the class privilege and the healthcare I had and all of these things meant that I had both the medical and legal things taken care of for myself. Like my, my legal documents say that I'm male, all my identity cards match up. Like I am not going to be the one most affected if this law passes. And so even though like I have something to bring to the table, knowing that, you know, it's, I don't know how to, the metaphor would be, it's not my table or, you know, or whatever it is. Like, um, so, you know, that I was in that space for a good 45 minutes or an hour before I even said anything and just like listening to other people and let, letting in particular the trans women and especially the trans women of color in the room say, you know, what they were thinking, what they were afraid of, what they wanted to see from the community and the savior versus service thing, meaning like, I'm not going to come into that space and say, hey, I'm a political expert and I know how to fix this or I know what we need to do. Everybody get behind me. But rather like sitting and listening and at the end of it being like, here are the skills or things I have. How can I help? Mm -hmm. That that to me is like on a practical level what that sort of politics would start to look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one reason I love and respect you is so much in general uh, is you know, I've, I've always known that about you, you know, even before, long before we dated, uh, just every time, you know, you had talked about an anniversary of first time taking testosterone or chest surgery, you know, instead of being like, what a special day for me, you would say that, but you would also like make a day about you into something that centered trans women of color and the experience that other trans people who don't have your same race and class privilege, how, how part of your responsibility as being a sort of quote unquote like success story trans person is to show up for the rest of your community and or the people who you aren't you know in direct community with in terms of race and class um and gender identities um in terms of trans women so uh it's just something i really find you know 
an, ins an inspiring way to put your politics in, in, in practice, how you think about things. Well, thanks, Boo. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I just think, you know, it's um, the, the thing that's been on Tumblr for a bit now about being an ally is not an identity. It's, mm -hmm. it's an action or, you know, being an accomplice instead of an ally. It's, mm -hmm. it's that sort of thing that like, you don't stop doing that. Like, you're not just like, oh, well, I did the thing once and mm -hmm. now I'm good. Or like, I said a thing on Facebook and mm -hmm. I check off for the day, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you have to keep figuring out how you can show up and use the skills that you have. And that doesn't mean you do every single thing possible and then burn out. Like, but you have to ask yourself like, all right, do I, what do I have the capacity to do today? Mm -hmm. How can I help? And if, so, like, some days, you maybe you can't. Mm -hmm. Maybe you need to take care of yourself. But you, you you can't. It's not a static thing. It's a dynamic process of being a, in service to others. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anything else you want to say about your research or stuff going on in the world? <sighs> Everyone just take care of yourselves and each other. Yeah. It's just going to be so such fights ahead yeah just take care of each other yeah. well thanks for talking about all that you're welcome do you want to stay for rwl sure okay we're probably reading watching, watching and listening. listening to the same things i don't know if, i don't know about everything <laughs> you go first what are you reading watching listening to uh i just picked up a book i've been meaning to for a while uh it's a, a workbook it's called the politics of resentment by kathy kramer kathy with a k kramer with a c kathy with a k is a bright eye song Yes, it is. <laughs> um, uh, it's about Wisconsin politics specifically, but I think it's, you know, if I had to give you a list of like three things to read or whatever to understand what the hell happened with Trump getting elected, this would be on that list. Uh, she's a political scientist, also got her training at Michigan. And uh, she does this amazing qualitative work where she basically goes into different communities and just listens to how they talk about politics and tries to understand the their politics and, and well, how they think about it, why they think the things they do. And so the subtitle of the book is, um, or no, the book is The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness and the Rise of Scott Walker. And so lots of the think pieces you've probably seen since the election about, you know, the white working class and the Midwest and the Rust Belt and all these people who maybe in the past voted for Obama and now voted for Trump and that sort of thing. Like, her book is about that, and it came out before this happened. So I'm I'm reading that finally, uh, watching the Bachelor finale tonight. <laughs> Team no one. <laughs> Seriously, this has been a terrible season. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and listening to yesterday, I was all about my Ella Fitzgerald station, uh, Pandora station. Just Sundays are for old good music, mm -hmm. Ella Fitzgerald and Sam Cooke and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of between books. I still haven't finished Freedom Dreams, the Robin D.G. Kelly book I've been talking about for the last few weeks, so I'm going to finish that soon. Um, also reading some sort of pleasure reading, creative stuff. I think there's a book called Living the Creative Life that I'm reading. I think that's the name of it. Um, and watching, uh, yeah, The Bachelor tonight and re regarding last episode, maybe that gives some context of why I'm not like embarrassed about that, but bucket and listening to oh I don't know a lot of things I just came from boot camp this morning and it's just like remixes and like when the beat drops people just like lose it at like 6 30 in the morning it's like boom, 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 and everybody's like yeah so solid remixes in boot camp
Yeah. We on that chill tip. Well, wow. WTF. We feeling real, uh, loose, real fly. Yeah. We on that chill tip, real high. We feeling real, loose, real fly. Welcome to hell, bitches. This is Mickey Blanco. New world order, motherfucker, follow pronto. You're getting lying, nigga. Your soul is mine, nigga. You scaredy cat pussy, motherfuckers can't deliver. Maybe, maybe she born with it. Maybe it was Maybelline. All white Blanco give you heathen ass a christening. Niggas so greasy in the daylight, he glistening. Oh, this bag can rap. Yeah, they saying it. They listening. He's listening in the wind. At the flow AM spot. Blazed off the indica. A bottle of Ciroc. A mouth full of pop. Chug it in the payphone. When they handle local motherfuckers, y'all can go home. I- I'm the new Rufio. Y'all ain't no. I pimp slap you bitch niggas with my left wrist, bro. What the fuck I gotta prove to a room full of dudes who ain't listening to my words because they staring in my shoes. We, we, we make love of the night in the back of the club. Yeah, we feeling the vibe. Life, life, love. This shit feel crazy. Low key, loose niggas love. We getting wavy. 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 We on that chill tip, real high. We feeling real loose, real fly. We on that chill tip, real high. We still in real loose, real fly. Yeah, we get away, 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 we get away